So what I want to share tonight, based on God's word and based on some things that I personally am interested in and have been challenged by, is something that I find relevant for all ages, something that we can all think about. And that has to do with this idea of contentment. One of the things that I want you to think about tonight as we kind of go through and as different things might speak to more of you than others or some things might stand out to you or apply more personally to you in your own life, as that happens, I want you to think about one or two things with contentment. The first thing I want you to ask yourself and be thinking about tonight is how content are you actually in day-to-day normal life? How content are you in normal day-to-day life. You may not have ever actually evaluated that for yourself. To sat down and thought, am I actually a, a brother or sister in Christ or a young person that is actually content with what God has given me? Now, I don't mean to ignore or set aside those of us in situations, either right now or in the near future, that experience hard times. Hard times, whatever those might involve, often bring in us feelings for a want for change in our circumstances. And there's no doubt about that. That's a human condition. There's, there's people in the Bible that have been in positions where they desperately wanted a change from that position and circumstances. Those are challenges that God brings on us. Those are challenges that God teaches us and shapes us through. There's no doubt. But what I'm talking about is more daily contentment. The second thing I want you to think about is just how grateful you are as a brother or sister or a young person. That's what we're looking at. There's two parts to what we're going to look at this evening on those two questions. That is the battle for contentment. That's our first section. And uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about the science and technology behind uh, contentment and discontentment at the moment and also, obviously, what the Bible says. And the second half is going to relate to that, and that has to do with gratitude. And I want to talk to you about the science of gratitude, but obviously, and more importantly, what the Bible says. It's really fascinating to me, and that's, you may not know my background. Um, I teach senior biology. That's what I'm passionate about. I love biology, especially of the human body, and, uh, and science in general. So I'm going to share a little bit of the science Uh, that relates to those two topics tonight in light of the Bible. So before we start, we want to define two terms, two critical spiritual indicators in our discipleship, and that is contentment and gratitude. Now, I haven't put Strong's numbers and everything else up. What I've done is just looked at Scripture. Um, You might add to these definitions. You might subtract a little bit, but this is basically what you'll find when you look in Scripture and in general. Contentment, we would say, is a general satisfaction and happiness with what you have. It's being content with one's lot or the means that God has provided you with. Contentment is also associated with not craving or wishing for more or for something different. That's the essence of what contentment is in Scripture. Uh, Paul talks about contentment. There's issues of contentment in the Old Testament. We know them well, and sometimes some of the major stories in the Bible revolve around issues to do with people's contentment. Gratitude, on the other hand, is a thankfulness to God and others in some cases, so I can have or show gratitude towards you if you do something for me. 
But ultimately, our thankfulness or our gratitude in Scripture, the important part about it isn't just feeling, wow, I'm so grateful. It's, it's more an issue of who are you grateful to in Scripture. And that gratitude goes to God, ultimately. But also we can have gratitude towards our brothers and sisters. Certainly the Apostle Paul saw it that way. One of the things that the Jerusalem Poor Fund was going to do was create an indebted feeling between the Jews and the Gentiles. The indebtedness, the Jews had provided something for the Gentiles and their ecclesias, and Paul describes in Romans that the Gentiles now need to, out of gratitude, supply the needs of the Jewish people. And in doing so, there's a creation of gratitude, a knitting together of that brotherhood based on giving and receiving and thankfulness that ultimately goes to God for each other. So gratitude is an amazing thing in scripture. It's more than just mere appreciation. And when you find literature outside the Bible, obviously secular literature, they will define appreciation as different than gratitude. Appreciation is just an acknowledgement that something is useful or helpful to you, but gratitude runs deeper. This is conjuring up a feeling of thankfulness or indebtedness to someone else, in our case, God in particular. And gratitude in scripture can be seen as an attitude, a disposition of disciples or believers. Gratitude is seen as an action. It's a moral sentiment, it's a motive, and it's also an emotion. And all of those things come out in that wide spectrum of gratitude throughout scripture. Now I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter three. We're gonna do a little bit of group work because I feel like I've been missing my classes at school. No, I'm not, actually. It's nice to be over here. Um, I want you to open your Bibles, and I'm going to get the, uh, the young people over here at this table to do this little exercise, too, that'll only take a couple minutes. Even if there's not many people at your table, Carly, sorry. <laughs> if you want to jo join someone else, that's fine, or you can just think about it yourself. Totally fine. Don't all look at Carly. <laughs> I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I want you with the people, our brothers and sisters, young people at your table, whoever's there, I want you to ask this question. How many qualities in the list regarding the last days in 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 5 relate to issues of contentment and gratitude? I'm just going to give you a couple minutes to do that. Read through 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, and ask yourself how many of those relate to issues of gratitude and contentment It's a pretty weighty list.
All right, just 30 seconds. We'll wrap it up. All right, if I can have your attention again, that'd be great. Now I'm gonna take input from the tables and I'll, I'll speak them into this thing um, so you can hear them all. Which ones on there particularly stand out as issues relating to gratitude or contentment? Obviously the negative or positive of, the, of those. Give me one in that list. What's the one that stands out? Yep. Covetous, for sure. Defining quality of the last days, according to the Apostle Paul. Yep. Lovers of money. Lovers of money. That's right. Which, which displays a discontentment with what we have, right? Lovers of money. What's another one? Nice to see you guys involved. Awesome. What do you got? Lovers of self. Lovers of self. Excellent. Unthankful. Unthankful. Proud. Disobedient. disobedient. Oh. Why, why is disobedience possibly related to gratitude and contentment? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but that's a really good one to think about. Anyone else help her out? What do you think? Did anyone else put that? Disobedience. Do you reckon? Micah? That's right. So when, when you act out of disobedience, there's an issue of contentment and, and gratitude for what God has called you to do. Yep, sure. Another one? One more? Yeah, not loving good. Now, brothers and sisters and young people, I actually think this, this is why I feel passionate about tonight. That I, I just want to talk from a science point of view, but also obviously a Bible point of view. This issue of gratitude and contentment is massive for you and I in the world in which we live. The Apostle Paul says so. And it's something that all of us need to really think about because it's impacting or can greatly impact our discipleship in our life. And as a young person, this can impact whether you actually take on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism. It can have a big impact on our families, on our ecclesial life, on young people in our youth groups. It impacts all of us. What we're going to do tonight is see that there's parts of our makeup, our human nature, that are hardwired to discontentment and ingratitude. They're, they're hardwired. That's part of the curse, I'm convinced. It's part of how we carry around this, this body of death, as Paul calls it in Romans chapter 7. Not everything we cover tonight will relate to you, and I know that. But it might relate to the person next to you, or it might relate to you in the future. Either way, this awareness that we want to just share our evening together around hopefully can help you think critically and carefully about contentment and gratitude as you head into 2020. A big part of this, as we're going to see, is how social media is tapping into this. Now, I'm going to make really clear, I am not a person who will tell you, in my own personal opinion, that you need to get off Facebook, 
that you need to start a revolution and everyone get off Instagram. I, I won't tell you that, but I feel that we need to be told we need to think critically about how we use them. And we need to think critically as parents about how we engage our children in those platforms of social media. And not just because I think it's wrong and you should get off because I don't have them or whatever, um, but because there's things going on there that I think we need to be aware of in the time in which we live. And I personally feel that for the last days, they are a very strong contributing factor to some of the characteristics that the Apostle Paul lists in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. I want you to think critically tonight about that in your own usage or potential usage of those things. And of course, it's not just social media, it's life in general. So let's have a think. Now, what we're going to find, brothers and sisters, is that this battle for being content is not as simple as we might think. Discontentment isn't just merely an attitude, but it actually has a physiological, biological side to it that we need to be aware of and I think is really important. And it's been coming to light for the last 50 years in science. I want to introduce you to this man here that I learned a lot about in educational psychology. His name is B.F. Skinner, and I'm just going to call him Skinner because I can't pronounce his first two names, and I can't remember them either. Um, so that's a picture of him um, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. He was doing a lot of research and uh, papers in the at the University of Harvard in what famously became the Pigeon Lab. Now, I have a personal... I was going to say discontentment. I really don't like pigeons, okay? Um, we just ended up taking care of a few pigeons back at our home in Adelaide because they kept waking us up way too early morning and making a mess, whatever. So I don't like pigeons, but, <laughs> but these pigeons are brilliant. And what's really disappointing is that what this man found is that there's a stronger connection between us and pigeons than we really like to admit. And I want to show you what that connection is. Obviously, we're different. I get that. But there's, there's things that are going on. Let me explain to you. It is kind of interesting and, and pretty humorous. So he did experiments on pigeons. Imagine being in that lab. Pigeons everywhere. I don't know who the little guy was that was cleaning up those cages, but it probably wasn't him. So he did heaps of experiments on pigeons. And uh, pigeons will eat pretty much anything. If it's bite-sized, they'll peck at it and have a go. So he designed some really cool experiments that gave us some really interesting insights into human and animal behavior. So what he did is he set up a little cage like this. And if the, there was multiple variations of his experiment, but this is the basic version. He set up this little experiment, and if the pigeon tapped um, a button, a little pellet would come out. And the pellet would go, mm really good done okay <laughs> so every time the pigeon would peck the button it would get a little pellet and down the hatch done now when he did this he found it really interesting because the pigeon would only peck the button every so often because it knew every time it pecked it would get a little thing so eats it done and that's kind of like pigeons in nature they'll go around on your front lawn and peck things whenever they feel like it now the really interesting thing is 
When he changed his experiment, he found something revolutionary, and this has impacted everything that's happening even up to today. This is the beginnings of real animal behavior stuff. He found that there was a massive change in pigeon behavior when what was called a variable reward was put in that cage. Now, let me explain what I mean, okay? I'm gonna walk away. We all know this basic formula, and this is what he was doing with the pigeons in the first place. If you do X, you receive Y. So for pigeon brain, if I peck button, I get pellet, and he eats it up, right? Now that was normal, predictable behavior. The pigeons were doing their normal thing, but something drastic changed when the pigeon was introduced to this formula. If I do X, I might get Y, which is the pigeon pecks the button. Dink. 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 Oh, and he eats it up. And it wasn't that next time it was three pecks to the pellet, next time it was five pecks, then it was two pecks, then it was one peck, then it was 20 pecks. And what happened is something really remarkable in the science of psychology and animal behavior. Look, we act like this all the time. We know if we go to work, I do X, I get paid, usually, okay? Well, I do, I'm not saying that heritage doesn't pay me. But if we do X, we get Y. We, we live by that system from a purely human point of view all the time. It's in our genes, it's our kind of, in our makeup. Um, if you make uh, a silly joke, you get attention, that's kind of something, and so what you'll find is sometimes students at school that are locked into that, I'm not saying they're pigeons, but I'm saying this behavior is really relevant. A student might find out that if he makes some sort of silly joke, all the class laughs, so he does it again when he wants to, to get attention. But when you change it up to a variable system, the psychological effects are really amazing. What happened to the pigeons in the lab is that they went berserk with the button because they just, they had this expectation, Pook! and it might come, might not, but I don't know, so I'm gonna keep pecking that button and I might get a, and so what happened is, instead of the pigeon knowing what was gonna happen, they didn't know, they might get a pellet and that drove them nuts and it addicted them to the button. Now that's an incredible finding and what he found is that when you, variation, when you have a variation in the, in the results, you will find that it will produce a drastic change in the behavior of these animals. Do you know, this finding has influenced a lot of stuff that goes on today. And there's, this is not me making it up, this is research that's been used. This finding was incredibly useful for a lot of purposes. And we now know, and we know today, that his findings that were confirmed by others in the 70s as well are now what is the basis of what we call the hook model that's used by companies. Um, a famous now Jewish American wrote a book called Hooked, How to Build a Habit-Forming Product. And all behind this development of making a product that can hook people, customers into it, is basically the work of Skinner and others who found out that you can addict people and hook them to something if you, if you make a variation on the results that they get in terms of timing. So it's unpredictable. And so what happens is they've developed this model where there's a trigger, there's an action, and there's a reward that may or may not come within a certain time frame. 
And that person then becomes invested in it because they get some sort of pleasurable feedback and then they want to do it again and hope that they get the same result. This is actually embedded into company um, apps that are now being developed and it's called the Hook Model and he's a, been a big promoter. Look at the, the quote from his book on Hooked. Instead of relying on expensive marketing, forget billboards, habit-forming companies link their services to the user's daily routines and emotions because that's how you get people using your product. Not through billboards anymore, it's through making things that hook you in by using Skinner's research. That's why the pigeons were hooked on that button and hooked on the pellets. They went nuts. That's an amazing finding. Now, do you know what's really interesting? This is basically what he found. Your brain loves rewards from a human point of view, whether you like it or not, okay? Now, another company that has been using this in the last four or five years to great success is Instagram. Instagram, I'm gonna assume most of us know what that is. <clears throat> a little app where you post a picture online and everyone else can see it and then the people can see your picture. So I can pick up my phone and see a picture from Australia and I can say, oh, I like that picture, bang, right? Or if I look at it, I'm like, yeah, it's an average picture. And I say, man, I don't like it. Well, what's happening is, you might post a picture. So <clears throat> this is what um, Instagram's doing. I might post, post a picture and that picture might get 100 likes, but Instagram knows that if you get all 100 likes in the first two hours, like people are bang, 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 all over the world liking you and it goes it's not as effective as withholding those likes and slowly letting them come onto your phone. They have algorithms at Instagram that are basically saying, we're gonna hold those likes back and release them in small variable bursts. And what it's doing in people's minds is making them more addicted to the likes that they're getting. And we're gonna look at the psychology of that behind the mind and what they're doing. It's exactly the pigeons in the lab, but now people are doing it on social media platform with the rewards that people want. Not pigeon pellets, but likes on Instagram photos. Just think about this. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20. This is a timeless truth. As death and destruction are never satisfied, so the eyes of a person are never satisfied. That's a truth that if we can take that on board and realize that's a truth about our human nature, the way that, the way that we actually are, that can be liberating because we now know that no matter how much of that thing we get, we'll never be satisfied with that. It will never come to a nice, happy conclusion where I've got enough likes, as it were, or people following me on Facebook, or posts that I've reposted or whatever. You, you'll never get to that point. God has told us that's the way your mind works. But the amazing thing is, they call this brain hacking in app development and other things, they literally do, where we're, we're hacking the brain to find out how it works so we can exploit it. And what they're doing is hacking what we've been told in Proverbs 27 verse 20, you're never gonna be satisfied. And that is how so many companies in the world today are making billions of dollars. Daughters? Dollars. And it's all based on the fact that our eye will never be satisfied. It's a delusion. 
I think I, I have it written in my margin from a long time ago. I don't know if it was my dad or someone else. Beside Proverbs 27, verse 20, the I will be satisfied delusion, spelled E-Y-E, right? It, the delusion is you won't be, and it never will, and people play on that now. And that leads, brothers and sisters and young people, to a culture of discontentment, and that discontentment fuels the economy. Now, I'm not saying tonight's all about the economy. I'm just saying that that's the society in which we live. It can fuel a lot of other things as well. Now, this understanding of, of animal behavior and how it impacts technology and everything else went one step further at McGill University in 1954. A famous experiment done by two scientists called Olds and Milner. This is a famous experiment. Let me tell you what was happening because it's a great story, okay? Um, they had rats, this time it's rats. So now we're gonna have some similarities to rats, which I'm sorry, but that's the human nature in us. Anyway, so they took rats and they were putting them in a cage with a little electrode bar. And what they would do is they, I don't know how they did it, but they inserted like a little electrode into the brain of the rat. So this like wires hanging down into the brain of the rat, he's running around the cage. And if he touched a metal bar, it would zap the rat. And the rat would be like, and run to the other side of the cage. And they're like, wow, this is really fascinating. They're doing all sorts of experiments with that. But then there was this guy. He was called Rat 34. And this made all the difference to their experiment at McGill University. They put the electrode in the brain of Rat 34. They put him in the cage and they watched. And he went over to the little metal bar and he touched it and he didn't run to the end of the cage. What he did was fascinating. He touched it again and they were just blown away by what was going on in that cage. What was going on, brothers and sisters and young people, is that rat ended up touching that metal bar for a maximum of 2,000 times an hour. They counted over 24 hours that that rat touched the metal bar 7,500 times to the point of exhaustion and it died. The reason, they had put the electrode in the pleasure center of the brain. And that rat, when he was touching the metal bar, had his brain stimulated in what we now know is the pleasure center. And the rat was like, whoa, that felt good. And to the point of he became addicted. And all that was doing in the brain of the rat was releasing a chemical I want to talk to you about a little bit tonight called dopamine. And in that pleasure center, dopamine was released and it became, it's a natural drug or neurotransmitter in the brain. We experience it all the time. And I'll show you how that's the case on normal levels. But this rat was being supercharged. So it would release dopamine and it would make the, the rat feel euphoric. And then it would fall back down and it would feel depressed. So it would go back to the bar, feel good again. Now, this research was taken a step further later by another scientist who came across a woman who had been depressed her whole life. Like really, since a little kid, there was, there was real things that they were trying to work on with her. He put an electrode into her pleasure center and he turned on the voltage and she started to giggle. Then he turned it off. And that was the first time in her ever, her whole life that she started to feel happiness and pleasure. He turned it off 
And he's like, wow, that's really interesting. I guess that's the same as the rat experiment. But what happened is that woman became even more upset because she'd now tasted of the pleasure and didn't have it anymore. And she wanted it more. And she would, yeah. Anyway, so you get the idea that what's going on here that he tapped into is the pleasure center of the brain. That rat became addicted. And we're going to use tonight, this is an example of severe discontentment. And obviously, addiction is other things, and we know, and, and we may know people that have addictions, and they're serious. We're not making light of that at all tonight. But what we are looking at is a society that leads us towards many types of addictions. It's driven by a discontentment, and that discontentment actually does, whether we like it or not, have a physiological side to it. It's not as simple for us as just like, oh, decide not to or to. We have to know that we are bent this way. And that's what Proverbs 28 or 27 was telling us. Now, as we go along, brothers and sisters, I came across this article, and this is where it relates more poignantly to social media. This is produced by the Harvard University, the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. It's written by Trevor Haynes, who's a research technician in the Department of Neurobiology at Harvard Medical School. And the article is called Dopamine and the Battle. Sorry, it's not called Dopamine and the Battle for Contentment. That's my title. The title is Dopamine, Smartphones, and You, A Battle for Your Time. Now, interestingly, in this article that is described in this, uh, in this uh, uh, magazine, this publication, he describes that in your brain you have uh, three pathways that have to do with rewards and dopamine. And I'm just gonna show it to you because it's interesting from a science point of view. There's three pathways in your brain that have to do with dopamine and rewards. And they're listed there, don't worry about the big words, but just know that there's three key pathways that when a certain pleasurable experience occurs, it releases dopamine in a certain area of your brain. And what it does, it gives you pleasure and it, and it changes the activity of your brain when those things take place. So, for example, one of them has to do with uh, when you see other people. So even when we come to Bible school and we meet someone at the door, this has probably happened to me a lot, people I haven't seen for a long time. I come in, uh, well, Doug, I just saw Doug today. I haven't seen Doug for ages. So I see Doug and I say, hey, and I give him a hug. And what happened in my mind on a little teeny scale is a little bit of dopamine happened and scientists know this because it was a great thing. A smiling face can do that to us. Science has showed that. Any, any social positive interaction releases that. That's crucial to understand. So these people at the barbecue, whoever they are, when they're greeting, okay, there's little bits of dopamine. That's a social thing. Science has approved that. They're, it's a pleasurable thing and you want to do it again. You want to see that person again. You want to greet and find new people again. That happens. What happens, brothers and sisters, every time that, that occurs, it reinforces the association between that great experience and the feeling, even if it's a micro-feeling of euphoria or pleasure, something that's positively rewarding. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not as strong as taking drugs like cocaine, but it's certainly similar from a drug and neurotransmitter point of view. Now you think about this. Smartphones in your pocket now give you 
an unlimited access to social stimuli, positive and negative, more than ever the world has ever seen before. In fact, cognitive psychologists are calling smartphones and social media the biggest change in our economy and society since the Industrial Revolution, only because of the effects it's having on social dynamics and our minds. That's a big deal. That's a significant thing to take place in these last days before Christ returns. What I mean by that, brothers and sisters, is now you can have a smartphone and I can have it at work and Kate can send me one of those little things. That's not a picture of me, obviously, but Kate sends me one at lunchtime. And I get a little happy, smiley, lovey face from Kate at lunchtime at work. And I'm like, huh, so nice. Now that didn't happen before. I had to go home from work to get that. Do you know what I mean? That, that's all changed. But, but, but young people and teenagers and moms and dads are getting this like never before. Every time you get a message, scientists have shown it's releasing that dopamine in your brain. And what it does is it becomes addictive. And the power of it, brothers and sisters, is because it's the same as the variable reward system. If you send a message to someone, you may or may not get one back in the next minute. So you keep checking your phone because your brain has addicted itself on a small little level to want that feedback to receive that pleasure. That's exactly what's going on. And people know that, scientists actually know that. Have, have a look at what this says. Because most social media platforms are free, like Instagram and Facebook and all those kind of things, they rely on revenue from advertisers to make a profit. This system works for everyone involved at first glance, but it has created an arms race for your attention and time. Ultimately, the winners of this arms race will be those who best use their product to exploit the features of the brain's reward systems, which we were just talking about. Now, that's an incredible statement, and that's what we've got. Now, I'm, of course, like we said at the beginning, not saying that this applies to everyone, but it cert certainly is something that all of us need to think carefully about, brothers and sisters. This is the age and the challenges that we are living in and with. That's something that all of us need to take stock of. Let, let me give you one last illustration so it's really clear to you if this is you in this position of how this works and why it's working, right? Let's just have a look at this. Oops, I'll just click that one. All right, let, this is on a um, sort of a more basic level. This is your dopamine levels, these lines. So ignore the blue and the red for a moment. This is your dopamine levels in your mind, right? Everyone has a normal baseline. We're, we all have that as a normal baseline. When you post a picture on Instagram, and I'm using this as the example, you post it and you wait for people to say, I like that picture. And when you post your first picture and you get it as a teenager and someone's liked it, you're like, Right? And it feel, even if you didn't do the fist pump, there's a little thing in your brain that says, oh, that was good. And then you get 20 likes and 50 likes, and you're on to something. Right? That's where your dopamine levels have gone up. Now, next time you do it, science says the game has changed. And Instagram knows this. I don't mean to present it as like some, you know. But there is, yeah, anyway. Okay. So 
what happens next time is I get on my phone or Facebook and I put a post on and it's then that I get the dopamine hit. Because what's happened is I'm anticipating the reward and my brain has been trained. That's exactly how it works. And when I get the like on my post or my picture, nothing's changed because I already got the dopamine hit in expectation that I would get it. But this one is the most powerful one. I post a picture, I get that pleasurable result, and then I find out nobody liked my picture. And this is what happens. The dopamine levels decrease, and my brain says, I've had it before, and I liked it like I had that hit before, so now what do I gotta do? I gotta post a new picture and delete that one that didn't quite get good. Now, you might think, oh, what are we, what that does, brothers and sisters, is I actually think that is the seedbed of some of the things that could definitely relate to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, because here's what happens. I post a picture, nobody likes it. What do I do with that picture? I delete it, and I post another one where I'm looking a little bit better. And I get a few more likes, but teenager in ecclesial setting Y posted a picture around the same time as me and they got twice as many likes as me. And do you know what that's doing to my brain? And I'm not making this up. On a little micro scale in my bedroom as a teenager, as I'm going to bed, it creates a small amount of discontentment and anxiety. And you delete that picture and you post another one. And what this eventually leads to is a totally fake curated collection of pictures and posts on Facebook and Instagram that are not a reflection of real life. Nobody pastes or posts a picture when they've just fallen off their bike, right? You're not gonna get likes. Well, you might actually because people are laughing at it, I don't know. But no one's, no, one's, no one's posting a picture of themselves just eating toast and a leftover cereal but you're definitely seeing pictures of people posting themselves eating egg and, eggs and bacon at the local cafe because it's so good and it's got that little parsley on top. And that gets the likes. So what's going on is a whole construction that leads ourselves to comparing to each other, discontentment, and all of those, all of those things. And Facebook and all of those, uh, all of those kind of uh, platforms are, are making use of that. Now, I want to show you this book. What got me thinking about this is a book I called, called Irresistible, and I recommend um, reading it if you're thinking about this in terms of issues with technology and your family and so on. This is a quote from Irresistible, written by Adam Alter. He says, it's hard to exaggerate how much the like button changed the psychology of Facebook use. There was a time when Facebook did not have any like buttons. No one could say, oh, I like that comment, right? When they introduced it, it revolutionized Facebook. What had begun as a passive way to track your friends' lives was now deeply interactive with an exactly the sort of unpredictable feedback that motivated another researcher's pigeons. Users were gambling every time they shared a photo, web link, or status update. A post with zero likes wasn't just privately painful, but also a kind of public condemnation. Either you didn't have enough online friends, or worse still, your online friends weren't impressed. Like pigeons, were more driven to seek feedback when it isn't guaranteed. And that's what it led to over time. Another app developer said this about the like button on Facebook. It's the, our generation's crack cocaine. People are addicted, 
we experience withdrawals, we're so driven by this drug that just getting one hit elicits truly peculiar reactions. And I'm talking about likes. They've inconspicuously emerged as the first digital drug to dominate our culture. And all of it revolves around discontentment and ingratitude for the circumstances that we have. So, brothers and sisters and young people, this is something that we need to think about. There's other little um, quotes that I want to share with you, but I want to just talk about envy, which is really a, a big part of what we're looking at tonight. This little article I came across, Is Envy the Enemy? Contentment and Happiness in the Age of Instagram Filters. I, I just want to show you this quote. Read it carefully, and we're going to look at what the Bible says. Clinical psychologist Rachel Andrews says she is seeing more and more envy in her consulting room from people who can't achieve the lifestyle they want, but which they see others have. Our use of platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, she says, amplifies this deeply disturbing psychological discord. I think what social media has done is make everyone accessible for comparison, she explains. In the past, people might just have envied their neighbors, but now we can compare ourselves with everyone across the world, and I would say in real time. That's true. We've got friends that go on holiday, and no longer, brothers and sisters, do you meet up for dinner and pull out the slides and have a slideshow of going to the, the tropical islands. You're getting a, a picture every couple hours. Bang, on the beach. Bang, on the bike ride. Bang, at the restaurant. Bang, bang. And what it's doing is driving us crazy with comparison. And it's happening in Christadelphia. It's happening in family WhatsApp groups where one family will go on a holiday and show all, and it's all done in good intention, absolutely. But there's one or two people in that family that are sitting at home because they don't have the money in their family to go on that holiday. And it just drives an instant, updatable, and variable remembrance of the negative side of things that we're driven to compare ourselves to others. It's true, isn't it? I reckon this is almost scriptural. We live in an age of envy, career envy, kitchen envy. It's ridiculous. Kitchen envy. Who, think about it, brothers and sisters, who in the Apostle Paul's time was checking out each other's kitchens? But we do, and also what we're eating for dinner, and what sort of little parsley is on the side of it. Children envy, food envy, upper arm envy, Holiday envy, you name it, there's an envy for it. You know, this is actually, I love this quote because it rings so eerily true of the age in which we live in. This is taken from Othello, Shakespeare's Othello. Diego says regarding Cassio, he was bitterly jealous about, he hath a daily beauty in his life. That makes me ugly. But you see, brothers and sisters, that might be more true for you with someone else than you care to admit. And a lot of that can be driven through the pictures that people post on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. I want to share with you a young person in Adelaide who is a married young woman. I was uh, some time ago gave a youth group up at the Mount Barker Ecclesia on the pursuit of purity. 
And I just mentioned social media as one of those offhanded kind of, you know, they're bad. This is what she told me. She wrote it down in a letter. It's hard to be a woman, I'm going to say in 2019, and social media doesn't make it easier. Late night Instagram sessions spent scrolling through photos of bikini bodies, clean eating, or TBT photos of someone else's amazing holiday. I only came, and I'm just giving you excerpts, I only came to the realization of how unhealthy social media was a few months ago. I was lying in bed doing my nightly scroll on Instagram before I fell asleep. I don't even remember what I was looking at, but all of a sudden I started having an anxiety attack, and it was real. She told me about it. Anxiety from looking at pictures of women who are more beautiful than I could ever be. Anxiety from looking at pictures of couples who seemingly had the most perfect and happy relationships, because that's all you're gonna post. Anxiety from my friends not inviting me to whatever social gatherings they were at. Anxiety from living a dull and boring life instead of being on that amazing holiday. Anxiety from wondering if people or friends made fun of my photos behind my back. The list goes on and on. But then a different feeling hit me. If I was feeling this way, how many other people were? I don't know why it took me so long to delete it off my phone. I felt so much better in the weeks after I did it. I felt my confidence grow, and I just felt happier than I had in months. Every time I took a nice photo, I didn't feel the need to instantly upload it. I could have a fun holiday without boasting about it to everybody. That's amazing, brothers and sisters, and I know that young person, and I know that is true for more than just her. And it may not come to full-blown anxiety attacks, but there is heaps of our young people that are currently now comparing themselves to others more than they ever used to. And it's driving our brotherhood crazy, let alone the rest of the world. It's doing damage, and I'm certain of that, brothers and sisters. We have to be careful. You just think about Facebook and Instagram now, freshly reading these words. But know this then in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves. And I don't care anymore, brothers and sisters, but I'm gonna tell you that even though the initial intention with sharing our lives so fervently on social media isn't driven by necessarily evil intentions, the end result for some becomes a loving of yourself. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, dis brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Do you know that word pleasure is the word that comes from philio and hedonos? If you guys heard the expression uh, hedonistic society, what does that mean? If a society is a hedonistic society, or the hedonists, who were they? Mm -hmm. Pleasure seekers. No restraint. It's all about pleasure. So I also read a book recently that's called Thrilled to Death. And it's coming right out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Lovers of pleasure is phil adonos. It's coming from the Greek word hedone, which is pleasure or delight. That's what Paul used in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now this book is called Thrilled to Death. 
brothers and sisters. And it's a, it's a frightening book to read, and it's pretty full on. But what he's dealing with, as someone who works in this area, is finding that there's a lot of people that are actually in such pursuit of pleasure and getting so much pleasure in their lives that they are no longer able to feel normal pleasure. So we have words that are linked to this in the research. There's a word called, or a phrase called, hedonic adaption. And it's, it's basically when people acclimate to positive developments and so don't get the same enjoyment out of them anymore. The thrills wear off and we need to seek a greater thrill for greater pleasure. And this is happening on social media as well. When once you were happy with 50 likes, now people are not happy with 50 likes, they want 100 likes. And it goes on and on. Same thing is happening on Wall Street. There was a, a, a guy that I, I can't remember his name, his name's Sam, he was a Wall Street trader. And he tells the story because he got out of Wall Street. He told the story that when he got his first $40,000 bonus, he was like, oh, this is amazing. And less than a year later, he was dissatisfied with a $1.5 billion bonus because he was so entrenched in comparing himself to the other traders in Wall Street and more was not enough. And it's just exactly what Proverbs 27 was telling us lovers of pleasure and what it can actually do is make you want more and more here's how it works right he outlines it in the book that's a normal person there's a little a little bit of a nice thing that happens and you reach the pleasure center of your brain and that releases a nice amount of dopamine at normal level no normal level right but then he shows that overstimulation starts to raise the barrier to the pleasure center due to dopamine flooding. You're getting too much of it all the time. You're always getting likes on Facebook. You're always seeing pictures of people that make you feel happy. And what happens is the threshold of you feeling pleasure goes up and you need more stimulation to get that pleasure. And so people seek out more pleasure and more extreme types of thrills. And by the way, this is at the heart of a lot of issues going on right now. He calls it flow, full-blown anhedonia, when only high stimulation can now even come close to reaching the pleasure center. The threshold is so great because we've filled ourselves with so much pleasure and it keeps ramping up that we almost get to the point where we can't feel it anymore. You know, when we look, brothers and sisters, at these things to do with envy and, and getting stimulation from pleasure and comparing ourselves, the Bible has always said to us the warnings. And here's just a couple. Enviness or envy is rottenness to the bones. And you know, I believe, like this young person that wrote that letter, that's exactly what she was feeling. It was discontentment, which really, when you drill down, was a deep-seated envy. And she didn't want it. It wasn't something that she chose to, to choose to envy. It just came upon her because of the prolific comparison to others. You know, in Romans chapter 1, we're told this warning. One of the things that was true about these people in Romans chapter 1, they didn't retain God, and what he got replaced with was envy of other people. There is one way to push God out of your life, for him not to be with you, and for you to not feel he's remotely near, and that is when you become fully overcome with envy 
discontentment and ingratitude. You will not feel the nearness of God. He will feel very far away because you're not accepting the, the things that he has given to you. Look at Romans chapter 1. Don't ever forget that. Seems so simple, right? Nor were they thankful. And interestingly, brothers and sisters, I don't know if this is right, so I'm happy to be shown wrong, obviously. But it goes on in Romans to say that they turned their God into the image of a man. And I, and I just wonder if what's going on now, maybe with some social media use, is a modern form of idolatry, where God becomes, for us, other people that we're constantly comparing ourselves to, almost worshiping, we're following, we're looking, we're following that woman who posts all her different hairstyles because we just want ideas. But what inadvertently happens is that we become envious of her because she has such a great body. That's happened to moms before. Maybe that's symptomatic or just a new way of how covetousness and lovers of pleasures are showing up in the last days. Look what Corinthians says. But they, and I know it's out of context, but the principle still applies. Think about you, your children, your family, your ecclesia. But they, measuring themselves by themselves, are not wise. Thessalonians, brilliant. It talks about loving the brotherhood, loving each other, and, and, and working together, the ecclesias in Macedonian and Thessalonica. And he says, you know what? Lead a peaceable and quiet life and mind your own business. And he's not saying, mind your own business. He's saying, just mind your own business. I think that's the sense in which the Apostle Paul is, don't, don't get caught up in what everyone else is doing. And that's a challenge, brothers and sisters, today. Maybe we need to wind her back, focus on our own family, focus on our own discipleship in relationship to Christ, rather than having our evenings or part of our evenings and our day and our recess breaks and our lunch breaks consumed by looking at other people, reading other people's posts. James chapter 3 has a poignant warning. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every evil practice. Just remember that. I think it's time that we call social media to account. Not telling people to get off of it, but telling people to think carefully, spiritually, about what it's doing and the impact it has. We can't finish tonight, and if you don't mind, <clears throat> we'll just go for one minute over time, right? Because I, I want to share with you something else that has just bowled me over. And it's kind of funny, but it's also amazing from a spiritual point of view. What, what is the antidote to this? There's no point in just saying, well, that's the evening, we're done. What, what can we use to battle discontentment? Pardon? Absolutely. This is one of the crucial messages of Scripture from Old to New Testament, that people who are filled with gratitude are people that will be closer to doing the will of God. And I want to share with you just a couple thoughts on that. Battle discontentment, brothers and sisters, 
with gratitude. Um, why? Look at the counsel of God. This is my favorite verse on gratitude, thankfulness. First Thessalonians 5 verse 18, in everything give thanks because it's a good idea. It's good for positive psychology. Actually it is, but there's far more profound than that. Think about this. Gratitude is the will of God for you, for us. What the will of God for us is for us to be disciples who are deeply thankful for what God's given, obviously, most importantly, through his son. That should drive us in our life. Maybe it should curb the things that we try and share with other people. When we're deeply thankful for God giving his only son, that's what we're preoccupied with. And I say that to myself too, not other things. Philippians 4, this is brilliant. I love this chapter. We don't really know what the issue was between Euodia and Syntyche. People have proposed ideas. You know, maybe it was ecclesial lunch and they, one had a better lasagna than the other. I don't know. We don't really know what was happening there. And I love the fact that Paul doesn't kind of go into all the details of what their problem was. But I wonder if in 2019... Maybe there were two sisters that were uh, comparing their homeschooling curriculum and one became jealous of the other. Maybe this is two sisters who were comparing themselves through social media on things like family holidays. I don't know. Whatever. There was a fallout between them. What was Paul's advice? He implored them to be of one mind. And he reminded them that the big picture was that they were both written in the book of life. I'll just leave that for you to think about. He goes on to talk about anxiety. We need prayer, we need thanksgiving, and we need meditation on the things that are pure and right. Not meditating on other people's lives, that will only lead to confusion in every evil practice. We need to focus on God, get back to the basics through prayer and gratitude. That's why he can say, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. How did Paul do that? And I'm convinced personally, brothers and sisters, there's no magic in the life of Paul. He was deeply filled with gratitude. That's why he was content. Christ meant everything to him everything in his life. He was not interested in comparing himself to others because all he wanted to do was follow Christ and compare himself to Christ. Maybe we don't do that enough. Maybe we do compare each other to each other far too often. Christ is out front saying, whoa, look at me. And we're too busy looking at each other, whether it's online or in real time. When you read Colossians, a number of times in that little exhortation Paul gives, he just says, look, you, you need to be thankful. Just give thanks. You know, what's really interesting, brothers and sisters, as we wrap it up in the last minute, is that science is now finding that God is right. I love, this is absolutely phenomenal. I've got to share this with you. Science is finding God was right. Out of the University of Berkeley, California, comes a white paper called The Science of Gratitude. 
and it's a summarization of the last 10 or 15 years of all of the academic journals, clinical psychology, everything else that have brought together academic studies that have deduced that being thankful is really good. It's amazing. Let me show you how bad it, well, how good it is. It's brilliant. This is, this is not some guy. This is University of Berkeley, California. The white paper, the science of gratitude. We've got some science. Gratitude's good. Check this out. I love it. I know it's a lot of words, but who cares? In recent years, a large body, just think about how great this is. In recent years, a large body of literature has developed showing that gratitude is related to a wide variety of forms of well-being. This literature stands in contrast to work showing that huge increases in income, an indication of how spending power, are needed for even modest gains in well-being. Boyce and Woods in press. Perhaps instead of spending lives trying to amass ever more possessions, people would be better advised to appreciate more what they actually have. Quote, some other study, simple, easy interventions have been developed that can be easily used in clinical therapy to increase gratitude, which may consequently improve well-being. More research is now needed into the mechanisms whereby gratitude relates to well-being and into developing optimal therapies. I, that is awesome. Because basically, it is, basically you just have to read the Sermon on the Mount, which is in way less highfalutin language, and it says the same thing. Jesus' teaching, that's it, in less academic terminology. That is the wisdom of God from a long time ago. It's always been there, always there. And these academic journals, in the last 10, 15 years, with the rise of positive psychology, are finding out, oh, there's data that shows that gratitude is important. Check this out, gotta show you this. In particular, this is from the white paper, in particular, studies have found that how participants see the intention of the benefactor, the person who's doing the giving, the cost to the benefactor, and the value of the benefit are all independently and significantly associated with the level of gratitude reported by these experimental participants, right? What they're saying is, people will feel more gratitude if they realize the good intention of the person who is giving, and if they feel that there was a cost involved to the giver, and if there was a benefit to them. Brilliant brothers and sisters. Think about us. Think about the Apostle Paul. What's the intention of God in giving his son? He's the benefactor. To save us and to fill the world with his glory, a people for his name manifested in a multitude. What's the cost to God? His only son. What's the benefit to us? Eternal life. There is nothing in this experimental academic ac academia, there is no other act of gratitude or act of giving that even comes close to that. And what they're finding in science is if you understand the intention, the cost, and the benefit, then your, you know, your gratitude will go up. We can't have, I believe, brothers and sisters, a higher level of gratitude. We, of all people on the planet, are the most filled. We should be the most filled with... There is no intention greater than God's. There is no cost greater than God in giving what he did. And there is no benefit for us greater than what God has in store. And so, technically, from the journals, but obviously from the Bible, there is a profound level of gratitude that should come from us. Um, I won't read them now, but I'd love to share with you some of the classic quotes from the white paper. It's like 70 or 80 pages. 
And it's awesome. There's things like we found that adolescent teenagers benefit from being filled with gratitude. <laughs> like, what? Thanks. Good one. Back to the Bible. But what I want to show you is one last thing. Land on this. Um, and this has to do with a term that's coming up in, in, in academic journals now and, and uh, in psychology clinics and working with patients that are dealing with all sorts of troubles. It's called gratitude intervention. And I realize that this is academic, but it's a brilliant confirmation, not that we needed it, of the Bible. This is what the white paper says. There's four key methods that experimenters are using today to help people in their well-being and to change their uh, materialism and all sorts of other things. Three things. One is counting blessings. They call it gratitude journals. The next thing is uh, the three good things strategy, where you think of three good things that went well today, and you also describe why that happened. The next one is mental subtraction, where you think about what life would be like without that positive thing or event and write it down so it makes you full of gratitude for that particular thing. And the last one is gratitude letters or visits. Literally, Harvard University and Berkeley University are getting people to write letters of gratitude to help them with their well-being. Even cardiac patients are experiencing benefits from writing gratitude letters to tell people, I'm thankful for you. The interesting thing, brothers and sisters, is all four of those are in scripture. Where do you find gratitude journals? Counting blessings, do you find that in scripture? Everywhere. The Psalms are a classic. You just look through and the Psalms are riddled with people stopping and praising God for what he's done for them and the nation of Israel. Do you find three good things? People writing down what went well and why? Any account of coming out of Egypt is exactly that. And people do it over and over and over again. What went well and why did that go so well? Well, coming out of Egypt's pretty good. And how did it happen? Well, it was God's power and might. There's other ones you can think of. What about mental subtraction? Do you ever find that in scripture? I mean, forget the academic term. Just think of 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then we of all men are most, just imagine what it would be like if Christ never rose from the dead. And, and Paul goes on to this amazing expression of faith and confidence. And how does he end 1 Corinthians 15? I thank God we have the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, all of these things are, are things that the Apostle Paul and faithful of old do. We don't need that to tell us. So brothers and sisters, let's remember when we're living in the last days of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, for our family's sake, for our ecclesia's sake, and for the brotherhood, we need to be and ought to be full of gratitude. And that should be countering our discontentment and comparing ourselves to others in envy. We need to let those things go and drive ourselves in the other direction. Look at what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we're going to carry nothing out, and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. And I feel there's challenges to us being content with those today. And here, finally, we'll close on this, which relates to Joshua in battling the Canaanites, brothers and sisters. 
We've got Canaanites. We certainly do. And we need every bit of strength and courage from God to do that battle. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You don't need anything else. I have provided what you need, brothers and sisters. That is how we should be living before God. So we can boldly say, the Lord's my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 